moments in one's life that that are etched in such a way that you can't forget them. And it's like it happened yesterday. Um, you can remember the time, the place, who you were with. I remember eighth grade. It was 1981. I remember the classroom. I remember my teacher. I remember where I was sitting. It was a crisp, sunny Tuesday morning. Um, and the teacher said, what we're about to watch, you're probably going to remember for the rest of your lives. And, and uh, she turned it on. And I watched there in that eighth grade classroom, like it was yesterday, I watched Ronald Reagan swear into office. And I still remember where I was sitting, my classmates and the teacher, and where the TV was positioned. It's like burned into my mind. And I know there are events in your lives, too, that you can look back and go, I remember where I was, uh, what I was doing and who I was with. Another one was, I think, in the mid-90s. Some of you will remember this um, or re- remember it as an event that has been kind of crystallized in your mind. And that was the verdict of the O.J. Simpson case. You remember that? I mean, everybody was just glued to the televisions. And if you weren't watching a television, you were listening to it on the radio. It was such a high-profile case. I remember where I was. I was in this little hole-in-the-wall Greek restaurant called The Dog Out. I was eating a gyro. And packed in this little tiny restaurant was a bunch of businessmen and businesswomen who had taken their lunch breaks. And everybody was gathered around the tables and crushed into this little tiny place watching the two TVs on the wall. I was sitting at a little high table, a little bistro table, with a friend of mine named Wayne. And at the point where they came out to give the verdict, there wasn't a sound in the entire little Greek restaurant. No one was eating. No one was was filling up soda cups. No one was uh, cooking. Everybody stopped. This is as if time stopped and you could hear a pin drop. You remember where you were when that happened? I remember where I was, who I was with, what I was eating. And then, of course, when the verdict came out, the, the, the place exploded in all kinds of different uh, verbiage <laughs> that I won't go into. But I, that, that, that's like it happened yesterday. That's been burned into my mind. And you know what? Another event that I know will be burned into my mind um, until the day I die, unless I have a massive stroke or I get Alzheimer's, is, uh, is the inauguration of our new, new president. Uh, that was nothing less than awe-inspiring. I was actually on the elliptical machine at the time, and I was watching it on, on the, the screen in front of me, and I couldn't take my eyes off of it. I mean, they were panning the cameras back and forth over the, the, the Capitol Mall, and there were people, an ocean of people as far as the eye could see. People from the Capitol building out to the Washington Monument all the way out to the Lincoln Memorial. As far as you could see, just an ocean of people gathered. And to get some perspective on that, they say that at the inauguration of George Bush in 2005, there were 100,000 people who showed up. And of course, this time, with Obama swearing in, Two million people gathered, and just the sight of two million people was an awe-inspiring sight. And then on top of that, the camera crews, of course, are, are, are showing the steady stream of important, profound people making their way through the Capitol building and then out onto the platform. You know, you had... Um, you had generals, chiefs of staff. You had members of the Supreme Court. You had um, celebrities. You had famous uh, religious people. You had senators and congresswomen and congressmen. And there's a sense of, when I was watching this, there's a sense of anticipation, like you're waiting for the cork to blow off this thing because everybody's waiting for the moment when 
Barack Obama steps out into the light, and then after these dignitaries, then come the presidents. And they say that there were more former presidents at that inauguration than any other inauguration in all of history. So you see Jimmy Carter come out, and, and of course the, the, the voice is, is booming and declaring who these people are. And then, then you have the older George Bush, and then you have uh, Bill Clinton come out. And then there's this moment where, sure enough, he shows himself. There, Obama steps out into the light, and that booming voice uh, declares him by name, and the crowd goes, two million people go nuts. And they start, at least some of the camera angles that I saw, they start chanting, two million people chanting, Obama, Obama, and there's flags are waving. And of course, of course, um, the dignitaries are standing at their feet, and honor of this new president. I have never seen anything like that. Regardless of what party you belong to or whether you like the guy or you don't like the guy, it was an awe-inspiring sight. I've never seen anything like that. And I know I'll remember those images on the TV for the rest of my life. I'll remember where I was, what I was doing. But as I, as I was watching that, my mind transitioned, as it sometimes does. And that is, I, my mind transitioned to the vision of Daniel chapter 7 where he envisioned a different kind of inauguration. And then my mind went to the Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, the same inauguration but different. And then it went to Revelation 19, these visions of John and visions of Daniel. And I imagined, based upon what I was seeing in the TV, on TV, what it would be like and what it will be like to see the inauguration to end all inaugurations. That point at which the barrier that now separates heaven from earth, to see that barrier destroyed and to see, to see the King of Kings, the King over all nations, the King of the nations, the Son of Man actually descend. With all of his entourage, I, 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 uh, I imagine what that would be like. And I know that's somewhat speculative, but I can, I can imagine a sea of angelic hosts. Perhaps legions upon legions, 10,000 times 10,000, millions, perhaps billions, we don't know how many God created, powerful, luminescent, brilliant, bright creatures standing in rank and file, the cherubim standing in the seraphim, and, and then the prince of the angels, Michael and, and Gabriel, and you have the four living creatures, and it's the sea of angelic beings that are all waiting breathlessly for this moment. And then you have standing amongst and with them the millions upon millions of the redeemed sons of Adam who bear the brilliant light of resurrected bodies standing there, everybody waiting for this singular moment when that voice comes over the loudspeaker, only it doesn't need a loudspeaker because it rattles the heavens, which says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And then the sea of angelic hosts and the sea of the redeemed sons of Adam, they shout with a shout that shakes the heavens, and they sing the song of the Lamb, and they fall on their faces, raptured in worship. And that kind of thought, and that's where my thoughts went from, the inauguration of Barack Obama to the inauguration of the King of the Kings, and that sends chills to my bone to think about. And that image, though somewhat speculative, it's in some form and in some sense is going to be a day that does come. And it has served for thousands of years, for thousands and thousands of people, as a day worth living for. 
in the Bible. Men have looked for it from Abraham who looked for the city whose architect was God and Moses who looked forward. They lived in hope of a great day in Scripture. And it was that hope of the great day that they could see the vision. It was that that enabled them to face all kinds of horrors from getting sawn in two to torture to imprisonments to being lowered into a miry well and covered over and left in the dark to being forced from family, have family killed before your eyes. It was that hope that enabled them to, to endure. And it was that hope that enabled Paul, the apostle, to endure his beatings, his stonings, his... Uh, nights in the dark sea, his days without food. It was that that kept him going because he knew, according to Romans 8, that the present sufferings, all of them, no matter how bad they are, the present sufferings, the painful ones, emotionally painful ones, physically painful ones, the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed on that day. It's what the vision that compelled him to keep going. And it is that vision, I think, and that hope that is a timely truth or message for us in our time in which people are experiencing darkness. And it is the message that is at the center of this last paragraph in Romans 13, talking about the future. This is now the fourth message in Romans, and this will be the concluding ones in Romans 13. And he draws our attention to the future. And I want to read this for us. Beginning in verse 11, Paul says this, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension or jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The first part of this paragraph talks about time. The last part, middle of verse 12 and on, tells us how we're to live in light of that time. That is, the first part of the paragraph gives us a sense of the vision of the future, and the last part tells us how we're to live in light of that future. Or, to put it another way, 11 through 12 tells us about the light that's coming, and verses 12b through 14 tells us how to live in light of that light that's dawning. Or to sum it up, until you see the light, you can't live right. You don't live right in the here and the present until you can see the light of the future. So beginning in verse 11, he talks about time and the future. Now, most of us are aware of, by experience, how important it is to know what time it is and to sense when days are coming on the calendar. For example, most of those guys who are smart and are aware of the time on the calendar know that seven days from right now is Valentine's Day which means you have seven days to prepare and somehow get your bride to know that you love her in a creative and original way that you didn't do last year. I don't know why that pressure is put on us, but it is. So those of us who are smart will realize the time and you will make the preparations because you know the time. Pity the poor fool who forgets that next Saturday night, while I am here, we have to celebrate Valentine's Day a different night, um, 
that he calls up his guys and says, hey, you want to go out, leaving his wife at home. Unless he likes sleeping on the couch, that's not something worth doing. That is to say, understanding the timing of things help one prepare for it. To not know the time is to be unprepared. And one of the most horrifying times of my life, it was a morning, it was a Sunday morning, and I woke up and realized my alarm clock did not go off. It was about four or five years ago. And by the time I found my phone, I clicked it and I looked and it was 8.30. Now, I got to be at the church and the service starts at 9. Because I had lost track of time, because my alarm didn't go off, I had a half hour to get myself up, take a shower, put my clothes on, get my stuff, get to the church, and then give a message that I wasn't prepared for. That is a scary moment. That's like some of you have bad nightmares about standing in front of a whole sea of people with no clothes on. Well, this was one of my worst ones, is to wake up and realize I... It's late. That is, the key to being prepared is to understand the time. And that's precisely what Paul has in mind here. He's he's saying, you need to understand the time. Verse 11 says, and do this, understanding the time. The do this alerts us to what was said previous. And at very least, it means that one of the reasons that we, we submit to the authorities over us in gladness and willingness, and one of the reasons that we love the people around us, that was the message last week, is because of the time that's coming. He says, and do this, submit in love, understanding the present time. And here is what time it is. He says, the hour has come for you to awake from your slumber. In other words, the alarm clock's going off. It's time for you guys to wake up. That's what he's telling the Roman Christians. And then he expresses why it's important for them to wake up in two different ways. The reason you must awaken from your slumber is because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That's one way of putting it. And then he says it a different way in verse 12. He says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. That's what he says. That is the future finale of salvation, what we're living for and hoping for. And if you think I'm completely saved today, well, you're wrong. Your salvation begun when you believed, but it will be fulfilled and brought to its final conclusion when God raises you from the dead. That is the finale, the grand finale of salvation, the inauguration of inaugurations, the, uh, the resurrection of resurrections. He's saying the salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And in the image he gives here, he says, the night is almost over and the day is almost here. He's telling the, the Roman Christians, Wake up, that time is dawning. I can see it glowing on the, on the edge of the horizon. It's, I think it's a rather stirring and moving image that Paul gives here of the night's almost over. It's like you've gone through the darkest part of the night, the graveyard and so forth, and, and here you are, you can see the glow on the horizon, and, and you're filled with hope that the light is almost here. That's, that's what he's saying to them. You can sense his anticipation, the intensity of his expectation. It's what he's living for. It wasn't, a, as I understand him, because it peppers its way, this truth about the future peppers its way all the way through all of his letters. This is what compelled him to live as he lived. He not only said, I believe it's going to happen, he actually believed it was going to happen, and he believed it's right there. Now at this point, we might stop and say, yeah, but... Paul was obviously wrong. I mean, he's telling the Roman Christians, the alarm clock's going off, the alarm clock's going off, the darkness is almost over, the light's almost here, but 2,000 years have passed by. He must have been greatly mistaken. 
To which you'd have to say, no, he, he wasn't mistaken because he never predicted the time of when Jesus would return and the timing of the resurrection, the timing of, of the dawning of the light. He never predicted it. Even Jesus in his earthly ministry didn't know when he was going to come back, so Paul wouldn't either. But there are a couple things that I think forged in Paul this intense longing for this future day and gave it a sense that it was right around the corner. One piece of that is that he knew it was certain. He knew it was certain. It would come inevitably and unstoppably. The day would dawn. Most of us know that, but do we believe it? He was convinced it was going to happen. In the same way you're convinced right now the sun's going to rise tomorrow morning. You're going to go to bed. You're going to put out your clothes. And then you're going to set your alarm because you believe the sun's going to come out tomorrow. You are going to prepare tonight. Because you believe the sun's going to come out tomorrow. Paul believed, he was convinced that it was an inevitable day that would break forth like a wave on history. He was convinced, absolutely convinced. That was one thing that intensified his longing. The, the second thing is that there was a sense of imminence in his understanding of the coming of Christ. Namely, that the next big thing on God's calendar in history was the breaking in of the kingdom of God. The coming of Christ. He knew that was the next big thing on the calendar, that it could happen within his lifetime. There's a sense of that in First Thessalonians 4 when he says, he says that we who are alive will, and, and, and will be, you know, meet him in the air and so forth. So there's a sense where he knew it could be. So there was that sense of imminence that, that, that it can happen in one's lifetime. So there's certainty, there's a sense of imminence to it, but there's also, I think, another piece of it. And that is he understood his present time. He understood the world that he lived in was a dark one. Hence, you have the night terminology. The night is almost done and the light, the dawn is almost here. He knew that the world that we live in, the age that we live in, is an age that's passing away. It's uncertain. It's war-torn. It's sin-torn. It's, it's shadowed by death itself. He knew what it was. Many of us may know it theologically, but I wonder if we're convinced that the world in which we live is dark, is fading, is uncertain. <clears throat> you know, there's this song that Don Henley sings. This is the end of the innocence. You know, the longer one lives, or should I say back up, and when you're a kid, you think the world is just some big bright oyster that's just going to bow down and give you every desire that you have. And the older you get and the more suffering you see, the more corruption you see the more you realize the world is a dark place. And that's not being cynical. It's just being real. I mean, I wonder if some of us actually believed and still believe that we have the capacity to preserve our wealth, that we have the capacity to secure our fortunes, that we can fix our ills or control our futures. If there's anything the last two years have taught us is that we can't ensure our wealth we can't preserve our fortunes. We can't fix our ills, nor can we control our futures. The world in which we live is this never-ending tossing sea of peace that gives way to war, of wealth that gives way to poverty, of life turns to death. That's the endless motion of sea, the dark world in which we live. That's why one of the reasons why Paul longed for the future because he knew the world he lived in the reason financial markets crumble because we're still in the night that's why 
The reason that nations still rise against nations, we're still in the night. The reason that, that marriage is hard and why marriages dissolve is because we're still in the night. The reason people still betray each other is because we're still in the night. Until you feel that to the core of your soul, you don't look to the future, to the dawn, to the eastern horizon to say, I can't wait until the sun rises. It's not until you feel to the core of your bones like Paul did, I'm ready to, I'm ready to see it. I know it's certain. I know there's a sense of imminence. And I don't want to, I don't want to live here anymore than, or any longer than I have to. And for those who have eyes to see and actually a heart to believe that the sun is going to come up and the dawning of the kingdom is going to be here, the inauguration of inaugurations and the resurrection of resurrections, it enables you to lift your head regardless of what's going on, to praise the God who has promised you not security in this life, but a security in the next life. That is, and if Paul could say 2,000 years ago, if he could, in a manner of speaking, stand on top of a, dull, a dark mountain, perched, looking to the east, and in the darkness he sees the glow. If he saw the glow of sunrise, or the glow of the coming dawn, and here we are 2,000 years later, how much brighter is the glow on the horizon now than when he first believed? And it seems to me, and I could be wrong, that times in which we live are ripe for the sun to actually break forth and splash onto history. That's kind of exciting, don't you think? It should be. If you know that we live in the darkness and a day of light is, is, is quickly approaching. It enables people to persevere. If you really believe it, it enables them to live faithfully. You know, one of the great Puritan theologians of the 17th century, a man by the name of John Owen, a man who experienced political turmoil, uh, religious turmoil and personal pain. He lost all 11 of his children before he died. It's a lot of pain, don't you think? Whatever you're going through, I guarantee you, you haven't, if you haven't lost all 11 of your children, um, probably haven't felt the emotional weight. In one of his books, he talks about the power of contemplating the vision of the glory of Christ before us. That is the glory of the future. And he says this, that that contemplation, and it's something you have to keep in your mind's eye over and over and over again. He said, it will carry us. You know, like a, like a mother carries a child. It will carry us cheerfully, comfortably, and victoriously through life and death and all that we have to conflict with in either one, life and death. And he lived it and he showed that it was true. That it's precisely knowing that the dawn is coming that enables you to continue. Do you believe the dawn is coming? Or is that just a piece of your state of theology but not lived out? Well, that vision then transitions into, or should I say, the coming dawn. The night is almost over and the light is coming. Transitions into how then we should live in light of that coming day. In the middle of verse 12, he says, so. So, if the first part told us that we must know what time it is and that the dawn is almost here, then the middle of verse 12 transitions, so. This is now how we're to live in light of that dawn. So, and he goes on to give three basic exhortations to us as to what it looks like to live faithfully in light of the coming dawn, the coming of the kingdom. 
He says, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The first exhortation kind of comes with clothes terminology, like you take off a pair of clothes and you put on another pair of clothes. And I've thought about that for a while. Why does he use that clothing terminology? Except if you think about it long enough, you realize clothing identifies who you belong to and defines you and expresses at some level who you are. I don't know what it was like when you were in high school, but there were distinctive features of clothing that identified certain classes of people. Now, this dates me in a particular time. I went to high school in the 80s. Those of you who went to high school back in the 20s, I don't think there are any here, or in the 90s, it doesn't work. But we all knew who the preppies were by the fact that they wore the Izod shirts, the dockers, and the penny loafers, and they would have the extended collar, and you knew, oh, they're part of the preppy group. That defined them, it expressed them, it identified them. Then, of course, you had the stoners. In my era, it was the stoners. You remember that? They all hung out at the tree in the, in the, at, at, at my high school and smoked pot until they cut down the tree and then they met at the stump. <laughs> they had their long hair and if they had went through puberty, they had scruffy faces. They wore uh, um, usually pretty ratty jeans and screen printed t-shirts with Ozzy Osbourne or Iron Maiden or Black Sabbath on them. I, you can pick them out and go, oh! you're part of that group you identify and that's how you express yourself and then you have on the other hand you have the jocks who would um, at least in my school they would every Friday because it was game day they would wear a collared shirt and a tie usually covered over by a sweater they didn't like ties so they put it over with a sweater oh you're a football player you're a football player that's how you know and the other days of the week they'd wear their letterman's jackets that were th those were the athletes it's just by their dress you identified them with a particular kind of group and then in my town there were the Aggies because there were people who did 4-H they had horses they had cows they had pigeons and chickens and they had all kinds of things and you knew them because they wore the Stetson hats they had the typical cowboy collared shirt they'd have the Wrangler jeans the cowboy boots and they'd have a belt buckle the size of Texas that that's Better than any flat jacket I've ever known. And you'd know them. Those are the Aggies. So you could identify people based upon their clothing, what they wore. And that's kind of what Paul has in mind here is that there ought to be a distinctive clothing that you wear as a follower of Jesus. A particular fabric that defines you and expresses you and sets you apart. Only Paul is not talking about clothing of cotton or, or, or polyester or wool. He's talking about the clothing of your conduct. The fabric of the way you live, that's what he's saying, that will identify you, express you, and define you in a world, in the world. So on the one hand, he says, to put off, to put off or take off, literally translated, take off, put aside the deeds of darkness, that is the works of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Put off the deeds of darkness. The, the, the way in which the world thinks, the way they act, what they value, that's different than the way the Christian is supposed to live. You're to take those things off. So you take off their hatred. You take off their pride. You take off their values. You take off their gravitation to money and materials. You take off their definitions of what sexuality really is. You take it off. Take it off like it was a shirt stained with vomit. Take it off is what Paul is saying. Take off the deeds of darkness that defines the world but is not to define you. And instead put on, he says, the armor of light. And the word translated armor is literally weapon of light. But to keep the metaphor of changing clothes um, logical, they interpret it or translate it as armor of 
of light. In other words, and by nature, the fact that we're to take off the deeds of darkness, I think what he has in mind is deeds of righteousness. Primarily, what we learned last week, and that is at the heart of everything, is learning to love our neighbors as ourselves. Consistently, sacrificially, intentionally. That that's, that's the clothing we are to wear that is to set us apart. Day after day. Day after day. And I do think it's interesting that he used a military term. Armor. Or a weapon of light. In other words, by clothing ourselves in the conduct of Christ, the love of Christ, actually, tangibly, in our deeds and actions, loving people around us, that our lives serve in kind of an offensive military fashion. That is, it makes a difference that our lives, when lived out that way, begin to cut through the darkness like a hot knife through butter. I mean, isn't that kind of the idea Jesus had in mind when he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, that the clothing of who you are, and they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. But that's, you want to make an impact in life? You want to be the leaven that brings change to wherever you live or go? And that means each morning you reach into the closet of grace and you pull out a fresh pair of clothes that you're going to conduct your life in a manner consistent with the love of Christ for people. Every day you put that on. Every place you go, you wear the same clothes. The conduct. That was, that's the, the ex, first exhortation he gives to us is, is to clothe yourself with conduct that is, that is reminiscent and, and representative of, of Christ. The second major exhortation has to do with comeliness or, or a living a life becoming. This is similar. When he says to us in verse 13, let us live or let us behave decently. Let us live in a manner becoming of a Christian. Now one of the things that I love and I, I loved and I still love about, about the Marine Corps is it has a pretty high standard, a high code of what um, conduct that's becoming of a Marine really is. And Anything that would bring disrepute or, or um, dishonor to the core is conduct unbecoming of a Marine. So compromising classified, classified information, conduct unbecoming of a Marine. To sleep with another man's wife, believe it or not, is conduct unbecoming of a Marine. To get drunk in public is conduct unbecoming of a Marine. Extending all the way down to carrying an umbrella as a male Marine in uniform in the rain is conduct unbecoming of a Marine. Now, I don't know why male Marines can't hold an umbrella when it's raining out and you have wool alphas on. Perhaps it's because they think it's too sissy, but the fact is you can't or you couldn't carry an umbrella because it's conduct unbecoming of a Marine, a high standard. And if you fail, you live a life that's unbecoming of a Marine. Same exact idea that Paul has here is, is he saying, in light of the coming dawn, have a life when you're inspected that's, that's becoming, conduct that's becoming of a Christian. That actually is comely and fitting and worthy of bearing the Christian name. And then he goes on to outline some of what it means not to be or live appropriately. When he says, let us behave decently, as in the daytime, and then he says all these negative things, a a list of six things, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, 
Not in dissension and jealousy. He's basically talking about excessive partying, um, promiscuous sexuality, and also that which causes dissension or strife amongst people. That is, a Christian who excessively parties is living a life unbecoming of a Christian. That has application, especially on a college campus, but maybe here too. That a life of sexual immorality, which I think biblically could be defined as sexual relationship with anybody outside the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman, is conduct unbecoming of a Christian. We can't allow the culture to redefine what is conduct unbecoming of a Christian. And that is having self-control in our sexual relationships. And then the last one, which probably has lots of application to us, is not in dissension and jealousy. That which divides people. Words said in private about another person that breaks up relationships and, and so forth. That that is conduct unbecoming of a Christian. It is unbecoming of a Christ who came not to divide but to reconcile. So he tells us here that our life is to be lived. Our life is to be lived in a manner becoming of a Christian. And the last one has to do with Christ. In verse 14 he says, Rather clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Clothe yourself with Christ, I don't think merely means put on the works of Christ, but actually has Christ Himself in mind as our covering, our protection, and our life. As one particular theologian wrote it, and I love the way he put it, he says, to put on Christ Jesus means that we are consciously to embrace Him Christ in such a way that His character is manifested in all that we do so that we are, as we consume who He is, His character then just floods and, and expresses itself in everything that we do and what we say, that He becomes the object of our, our, our obsession. And then in tandem with that, to cut off any provision or opportunity or mental preparation for gratifying any of our sinful desires, which every one of us has. So you keep Christ centered, clothe yourself with Christ at the same time, he says, don't make provision, which is the idea of giving forethought to how you can satisfy a certain sinful craving, which many of us do. You know, how can I manipulate things so that I feel popular? How is it that I can manipulate or do things so that I gain the position? That is giving forethought as to what will gratify these desires in here. He's basically saying, feast on Christ and starve the desires, is what he's saying. Feast on Christ and starve the desires. Don't give a crack in opening for them to exist or feed because they will grow. And all of this, of course, because the dawn is coming. Simply put, brothers and sisters, in Paul's day, the night was almost over. And it's even closer today. And the dawn is almost here. Therefore, how should we live? By clothing ourselves each day in, in the conduct of Christ and, and to live each day um, a life that's becoming of Christ and to live each day feasting upon Christ and starving our desires as we wait for the sun to break over that hill and for us 
to see the inauguration of all inaugurations, the resurrection of all resurrections, the glory of all glories as our King takes the throne. Or let me put it in short. Jesus is coming. Clean the house. Jesus is coming. Clean the house. If there are rooms in your lives, in our lives, my life, where I have conformed myself to the world, either in its values or its moralities, it needs to be cleaned out. That is, if we have made compromises, then it's time to uncompromise. And if we have become complacent, it's time to not be complacent. If we have fallen asleep, it's time to awaken. If we have been proud, it's time for us to dive in the dirt of humility. If we have compromised ourselves sexually or in terms of our own our own integrity, then it's time for us to clean the houses. Because as Paul says, the day is coming. The day is coming. It's time for us brothers and sisters, to just wake up and know the day is certain. It is going to come at some point. And when He comes, we want Him to find His troops living lives worthy of our King. That's, that's, the, that's the bottom line. It comes down to live a holy life. And I know not one of us is perfect in here, but that is not an excuse to pursue holiness. Hebrews tells us without holiness, no one will see God. So it's time to clean the house because Jesus is coming. The only way you're going to live life right is by knowing and believing in the light that's yet ahead. Will you, let me ask, and in closing with this, if you would um, take a moment, if you're here with a husband or a wife or your kids or you're here with a friend, let me just ask you to pray for each other. Um, You can whisper, pray in their ear and I want you to pray a couple things. One, if you really don't believe that there's a dawn coming, you want to believe, but you don't, then your first prayer ought to be, Lord Jesus, wake me up to believe that the night is almost over and someday the King of Kings is going to break through the sky. Help me to believe. Give me eyes. Wake me up. And then the second part of that prayer is to, if there is any wicked way in me that I have been holding on to, a room in my house that has not been swept clean, Lord God, give me, give me the grace to give that stuff up and to live in a manner worthy of Jesus in light of the coming down. Will you just pray for each other right now? Husband for wife, wife for husband, or if you have a child with you, or if you're a friend, just pray for each other. And then John will lead us in a couple of, of songs focused on our hope. Don't be afraid to pray.